When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello folks, Dominic here. This episode is side content. It consists of material from the reign of Horemheb, which I cut from the main narrative. I usually cut them for time, or because they didn't quite fit into the story as it was unfolding. But some of this material is quite interesting, and it would be a shame to leave it on the cutting room floor. If you're just interested in the main overarching story, feel free to skip this one. Otherwise, Enjoy some of Horemheb's unfinished business. Part 1 the Apis Bulls. The necropolis of Saqqara is a famous region of Egypt. Located southwest of modern Cairo and west of the city Mithrahina, Saqqara is the vast cemetery accommodating tombs from every period of Egyptian history. One of Saqqara's more famous destinations is a monument called the Serapeum. The Serapeum is a vast underground catacomb it is dedicated to these sacred bulls, bulls called Apis or Hapi. The concept of Apis was quite simple. It was a sacred bull kept at the temple of Ptah. Ptah, or Petech, was the lord of Memphis, the master of craftsmen, and one of the many, many creator deities in Egyptian religion. Ptah, supposedly, might come to earth in the form of the Apis bull, the Apis would reside at the temple of Ptah. It would live a happy life, being fed, pampered, and given plenty of cows to mate. Over the course of its life, each Apis would be honoured and bedecked with jewels and the finest of supplies. People might come to Apis making offerings and requesting things from the great god who inhabited this bull. When the Apis died, it underwent a form of ceremonial mummification. This changed over the centuries, but the gist of it is that the priests who cared for Apis would take the deceased bull, prepare it in a way that was similar to human mummification, and then take it to the necropolis at Saqqara. There, each Apis would go to its grave, an eternal symbol of the god and its avatar on earth. The worship of Apis is one of the oldest that we know about for ancient Egypt. Traces of this bull show up as early as the First Dynasty, around 3000 BCE. By the time of King Horemheb, the cult was already 1800 years old, at least. As you can imagine, this was an important part of the religious world. An Apis bull had died, and Horemheb, as king of Egypt and high priest of all gods, would be officially responsible for the embalming and burial of this bull. 
Sometime late in his reign, he undertook this ceremony. The king of Egypt, or his representatives, would prepare the carcass of the sacred bull. During the 18th dynasty, it seems that they may have ritually butchered the meat. Following the bull's death, the priests would carve up the body of the bull, and they would distribute the meat after offering it to the god. This may sound surprising. If the Arpa's bull was sacred, why would they butcher the body and consume it? Well, part of it seems to have been a consumption of the power of the god, and perhaps a way of bringing the essence of the god into the individual human. That is speculative. What we do know is that during the 18th dynasty, the burial of the Arpa's bull did not include a carefully mummified corpse. Instead, it was more like a collection of bones, the remains of an ancient butchery. Nevertheless, those remains would be carefully prepared, and they would be taken to a site west of Memphis for sacred burial in a necropolis. This necropolis is famous. When you think of the Arpas bulls, you may imagine their burial in the Serapeum. The Serapeum is a vast catacomb that descends into the earth. It is made of long halls that branch off into chambers. And in these chambers, enormous stone sarcophagi once held the remains of the Arpas bulls. The Serapeum is a popular tourist attraction and many visitors are enthralled and a little baffled by the monumental traces of this cult. I will discuss the Serapeum catacombs another time, but not today. The reason for that is very simple. Hormheb did not use that monument. The Serapeum catacombs, the vast underground galleries that we visit today, those did not exist in the 18th dynasty. Instead, they would come later, in the days of King Ramesses II. In the time of Horemheb and his 18th dynasty predecessors, the Arpas bulls were buried in different circumstances. During the 18th dynasty, the Serapeum was much smaller than today, and it was more discreet. Before Ramesses II started work on those vast underground galleries, the Arpas bulls actually went to their grave in small, individual tombs. In the desert west of Saqqara, there is a small cluster of monuments. They appear like tiny shrines, and underneath they have burial chambers. There are five of these individual tombs, and they all date to the late 18th dynasty. The first tomb for an Arpas bull was built during the reign of Amunhotep III. He ruled about 40 years before Horemheb, give or take. There was another burial for the Arpas some time after, possibly in the reign of Akhenaten, although that's a little bit uncertain. Then, there was a third during the reign of Tutankhamun. Finally, the fourth and fifth Arpas burials were conducted in the reign of Horemheb. As I said, most tourists visit the Serapeum in its later form, the enormous underground galleries that go beneath Saqqara. Most people don't realise the small, individual tombs are even there. This is understandable. The monuments are not open to the public, and there's not much to see. In fact, were it not for happy circumstances and a dedicated archaeological excavation, we probably wouldn't know much about them. The discovery of these burials, from Horemheb and his predecessors, 
occurred in the mid-1800s. Back then, a team of Egyptian workers, led by a man named Auguste Mariette, were excavating the vast necropolis of the Serapeum. During the course of their excavations, they stumbled upon the individual discrete burials of the early Apis bulls. Mariette and his team uncovered the site that Horemheb had commissioned. The tomb took the shape of a chapel, a small temple freestanding on the desert surface. Beneath this temple, a staircase led down into a crypt. The crypt within the bedrock was a rough square chamber. This was the burial site of Horemheb's Apis bull. When Mariette and his team opened it, the chamber was empty, robbed long ago. Apis burials were lavish. The bull would have items of jewellery and decoration fitting a divine animal. Traces of these burials survived. The Apis bull of Tutankhamun, for instance, once had items associated with kingship, like a crook and flail, symbols of an Egyptian ruler. Horemheb's burial was presumably similar, but alas, the chamber was empty. Or so they thought. Mariette's team cleared and documented the burial chamber that Horemheb had commissioned. The chamber itself was decorated. On the walls, painted images showed scenes of the underworld and the gods, including the sacred sons of Horus, four beings who would protect the body and innards of an individual when they travelled to the afterlife. That paint on a layer of plaster decorated each wall, and to an untrained or uncareful eye, the chamber may have appeared as simply one more empty burial hall. But Mariette was judicious. He knew from experience that things were not always as they seemed. The team checked every wall of the burial, and they soon found that one of those walls was fake. On the north side of the chamber, on your right as you entered, the wall was not bedrock. In fact, it was constructed. A wall made of stone covered with a thin layer of plaster. Mariette ordered the wall to be deconstructed. Lo and behold, as the wall came down, the team found another chamber. Horemheb's burial monument for the Arpus bull contained a second burial, one added to the first. Within this hidden chamber, there were pieces of a coffin, and there was a pile of disordered linen and mess. At first, Mariette thought the chamber had also been robbed, like the outer one. But that didn't make sense, the wall was clearly intact. Looking closer, he discerned the truth. Mariette had expected to find a preserved mummy, a vast body of a bull, carefully wrapped and preserved. But... During the 18th dynasty, the Apis bull was not mummified, at least not properly. It seems that after each animal died, the Apis priests butchered the carcass. They removed the meat, prepared it, and then offered it to the god Ptah. Following that, the priests seem to have consumed the Apis itself as part of their sacred rituals. When they did that, the priests took the bones of the Apis, along with its head, and they wrapped those up in bandages, preparing it as a sort of pseudo-mummy. This is what they buried during the 18th dynasty. At this time, the Apis did not require those enormous stone sarcophagi. 
Instead, they went to their rest in small chambers, hidden from the outside world. Their remains may have been paltry, but the relationship was the same. The bull had been consumed, but its power and majesty had entered the priests and the king. As a result, the power of the god had entered the living. The offering was a token burial, a representation of the respect and worship due to Apis. So although the tomb was small and the mummified remains were paltry, it nonetheless conveyed a sense of the sacred duty. Apparently, every Apis enjoyed a most sacred burial. Horemheb had the privilege, or the obligation, to bury two Apis bulls during his reign. The king used the opportunity to bury the Apis with great solemnity and respect, and the traces of this grave suggest that the burial was taken seriously. This was not a cheap affair. Whether Horemheb himself personally cared about Apis or was invested in that particular cult, we may never know for sure. What we do know is that, publicly, Horemheb was the definition of a pious and honourable ruler. Part 2. Buried Statues Sometime during his reign, Horemheb commissioned art for Amun-Ra. The king of the gods, Amun-Ra, lived at the enormous temples of Karnak and Luxor. In ancient Egyptian, these temples were known as Ipet-Sut and Ipet-Resit, respectively. Horemheb commissioned many projects in the halls and sanctuaries of Amun-Ra's domain. One set of art is particularly noteworthy. In 1989, archaeologists were doing maintenance at Luxor Temple. The monument was under threat from groundwater, and it required drainage and reinforcement. The team was clearing a spot in the Great Solar Court, the vast open-air courtyard at the heart of the temple. The Solar Court was a project of Amunhotep III, one of Egypt's most splendid pharaohs. But over the centuries, this court had been used and reused for various needs. As the team cleared and excavated, they documented many small finds. Then, a surprise. Beneath the paving slabs of the solar court, statues appeared. Stone images of kings, gods, and goddesses emerged from the soil. Many of them were broken, but others were intact or close enough. The statues covered a huge range of time. Many were from the 18th dynasty, around 1350 BCE, but the latest were Greek, from the Ptolemaic era, circa 300 BCE. The statues were buried during the Roman Empire. A military detachment had built a fort inside Luxor Temple, and apparently the soldiers had buried these statues to keep them out of the way. Surprisingly respectful in the circumstances, thanks to those legionaries or auxiliaries, a great cache was preserved. Among the statues, there are several images of Horemheb. They show the pharaoh making offerings to Amun-Ra, king of the gods. In one statue, Horemheb kneels before Amun. The god sits on a throne while Horemheb makes offerings. In another image, Amun-Ra sits behind a standing figure of Horemheb. The god reaches out, placing a hand on the king's shoulder. In effect, 
Amun-Ra presents Horemheb to the viewer, as if saying, Here, this is my chosen king. The statues of Horemheb and other rulers are beautiful. Today, you can see them in Luxor Museum. A special gallery dedicated to the Keish houses these images. They are well lit, beautifully spaced, and wonderful to behold. If you are in the neighbourhood, stop by to say hello to Horemheb and many more. Alternatively, you can see them online. Follow the link in the episode description. Part 3. Jebel el Silsila. As the king, or his priests, buried the Apis bull, other work was happening in southern Egypt. Far to the south, there is a temple, a temple called Jebel el Silsila. Jebel Silsila is a stone quarry, south of Luxor. Here, the Nile cuts its way through a massive bank of sandstone. For nearly 3,000 years, the mountains of Jebel Silsila offered an enormous quarry. Egyptian rulers used this area to extract sandstone to build their temples. At Jebel Silsila, Horemheb's agents quarried and then built a temple into the hillside. These temples, which are kind of like artificial caves, are often called speos temples, a Greek word. Speos temples are uncommon, but they're still noteworthy. In the past, we have explored one of these belonging to King Hatshepsut, episode 65. And in the future, we will explore the greatest of the Speos temples, the Speos at Abu Simbel, built by Ramesses II. Horemheb Speos at Jebel Silsila is kind of a halfway between the monuments of Hatshepsut and Ramesses. It's a small temple, but significant, and it preserves intriguing images for study. When you first approach the Horemheb temple at Jebel Silsila, you are standing on the riverbank. The Nile is close, just a few meters from the water to the temple. It is quiet, the river moves slowly, and the breeze flows through reeds and marshes, barely changed in 3,000 years. Horemheb's temple dominates the west side of the riverbank. It sits near the top of a hill, a rocky outcropping that overlooks the river. The temple itself has a flat face, polished and smoothed. The facade looks like a colonnade. There are four pillars with empty spaces or openings between them, and a fifth opening, the doorway, in the centre of the monument. Today, the temple exterior is pockmarked and weathered, and later rulers have added some of their own decorations to the empty spaces. But even now, the doorway identifies its owner. At the top of the entrance, three horizontal layers give us the names and titles of Djosa Keperu Ra, the living king of southern and northern Egypt, the son of Ra, Hor-em-Heb. Along with his names, the pharaoh identifies himself as beloved of four deities. He is loved by Amun-Ra, the creator, Ra-Horakti, the ruler of the horizons, Kunum, who fashioned humanity, and Sobek, the local deity of Jebel Silsila. These gods each had a role in the creation of the world and its natural phenomena. Horemheb honoured all of them at the front of his temple. As you go inside, you find many images of Horemheb and the gods. 
In one scene, we find Horemheb acting like a child before the great goddess Anuket. Anuket, or Anukis, was a southern goddess. She guarded the borderlands and ruled Egypt's frontiers. Her name, Anuket, means something like embracer, which is appropriate here. In this scene, Anukis wraps her arm around Horemheb, and she offers him her breast to suckle. The king feeds like an infant from Anukis' power. The goddess nourishes the pharaoh, and in turn, he derives some of his authority from her strength. The image of Horemheb in a childlike pose and suckled by the goddess reveals one of his most prominent ideas. Horemheb ruled with the god's blessing, and they shared their power with him. In other scenes, we find Horemheb acting more directly as a king. In one image, the pharaoh sits upon his throne, carried by soldiers. Ahead of him, a line of prisoners march as captives. These men are southerners from Kush, a part of modern Sudan. And the ancient artists give them stereotypical features in their hair, faces, and clothing. Above these prisoners, hieroglyphs record what is happening. Quote, Bringing back the great ones of wretched Kush, by the king of southern and northern Egypt, Horemheb, given life. His majesty has returned from the land of Kush with living captives whom his sword had made, just as his father Amun has commanded him. End quote. Horemheb claims to have led a campaign into the south. Supposedly, the king went upriver to Kush, and he returned with prisoners from the local elite. Did this campaign actually happen? Maybe. But when did it happen? That is unknown. There are no stelae or dated records of Horemheb leading such a campaign. The images here might be symbolic, a generic image of the pharaoh triumphing over all his enemies. It might be specific, recording an actual victory, either when Horemheb was king or back when he was a general. Alas, the current evidence is too slim to say anything specific. Horemheb claims victory over the south. Did he physically do it? That is up in the air. The heart of this temple is its sanctuary. This is a small rectangular room. Its decoration is elaborate. On three walls, lines of gods and goddesses appear. They sit on thrones and receive offerings and prayers. There are dozens of these figures, and they must have taken a long time to carve. The focus of the sanctuary is the back wall. Here, facing west, we find a group of statues, seven of them seated side by side and emerging from the wall. These rock-cut statues show the great gods of the temple. In the middle of this lineup, Amun-Ra sits enthroned. To Amun's left, which is your right, King Horemheb sits beside the king of the gods. From there, we have five other deities. The mother goddess, Mut, Thoth, or Jehuti, a personal favourite of Horemheb's, Sobek, the crocodile, and the lioness-slash-hippo, Taweret, she who is great. Hi. Sobek, the crocodile, sits at the edge of the group, but he's arguably the most important. This temple and the quarries of Jebel Silsila are in a region called Chenu, and this area was sacred to Sobek. One of Sobek's greatest temples 
is located just upriver from Jabal Silsila, at a place called Kom Ombo. So the sandstone quarries here were part of Sobek's domain. With that in mind, the Crocodile Lord sits at the edge of this gathering, but he deserves special love. The statues are carved directly from the rock. This is not the first time the Egyptians had done this in a temple, but it's a noteworthy example, because following Horemheb's reign, these kinds of statues, and Speos temples generally, will become a bit more common. The style of rock-cut temples will develop slowly over the early 19th dynasty, and it will culminate in the enormous monuments at Abu Simbel. Those temples are the direct descendants of ones like Jebel Silsila. I'm not saying Horemheb or his artists invented this style, but they kept the tradition going and gave it new prominence. This would develop in remarkable ways as the 19th dynasty began. These small tales are minor but interesting details from the reign of Horemheb. I hope you have enjoyed them. I will see you very soon for the next episode.